There's no on-off switch and there's no velocity switch we can turn down. We're using faster and faster computers to design and build faster and faster computers. We're using stronger and stronger AI to write code on its own for stronger and stronger AI. The notion that we're going to have AI that is fully human-like and then exceed human capabilities, I don't think is a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to AI and Your Life, the Essential Summit. I'm joined here. Well, I should say I'm Brian Keating, and I'm joined with my good friend and uh, mentor and and really a big influence, uh, influential person in my life, Dr. Peter Diamandis who was recently named one of the world's 50 greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. Peter's the founder and co and executive chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation, the executive founder and director of Singularity University, and co-founder of Bold Capital Partners, a venture fund with $250 million in investing in, in exponential technologies. Dr. Diamandis is also a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author of two books, Abundance and Bold. I've got those here. He earned degrees in molecular genetics, aerospace engineering from MIT, and did his MD at Harvard Medical School. And Peter's favorite saying is, the best way to predict the future is to create it for yourself. Peter, it's always a treat to be with you. Uh, thank you for joining us on this AI Summit. I pleasure, my friend. A pleasure. And... Uh... Uh, I was just saying when we're getting ready here, how much I enjoy my time speaking with you. So this is always a treat when when you got two friends getting together and talking about the amazing world we're living in. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll run out of time before we run out of topics. Uh, we've uh, both hosted each other on each other's podcast. Peter's podcast is uh, Moonshots and Mindsets. And it's uh, really delightful. It's seen exponential growth of its own. So make sure you subscribe uh, wherever fine podcasts are <laughs> bought and sold. <clears throat> so let's get started. So uh, I want to ask you, you are the person I look to, guru for many things, but lately uh, there's so much information coming in on AI and so much promise, so much hype, so much excitement. And I, I don't have time. I, I get 20 emails a week as you do probably even more, but the one I... I always read is yours in addition to mine, but I read yours because you distill it, you concatenate, and you make sense of the world of the new developments in AI. So we talked a few months ago, but so much has changed. Where are we at right now with artificial intelligence? Wow. So where we are is at a fascinating uh, transition point and inflection point. You know, one of the things I want to just uh, put this into perspective, right? Uh, I think we might have talked about this before. The first time AI was really discussed uh, was at a conference at Dartmouth in 1956. And so at that conference, some of the you know founding leaders in AI gathered. It wasn't a large group. It was a dozen or so. But the, the term artificial intelligence and the concepts around AI. And so that's just 70 years ago or so. Why has it taken so long? Uh, to get to where we are today. We're finally in 2023, and I put that as the inflection point because everybody's speaking about it. ChatGPT was a user interface moment. I'll talk about that in a moment too. But why did it take so long? And, and it turns out there are really four reasons um, that have gotten to us to where we are today. The first is uh, computational power, uh, right? What's 
called the law of accelerating returns by our friend Ray Kurzweil and you know Moore's law, which is integrated circuits. There's been an exponential growth. It's continued, you know, doubling in power every 18 to 24 months. And it's just now, really in the last five, six, almost seven years, that there's enough computational power you can throw at these deep neural networks to get them to operate. So computational power, and by the way, it's just exploding still. You know, we're seeing massive uh, uh, GPU clouds that are coming on, whether it's Tesla or Microsoft or, you know, Google, everybody. Uh, so computational power is not slowing down. Um, in fact, on a log scale, if you graph it, it's curving upwards, right? Which tells you the rate at which it's accelerating is itself accelerating. Um, the second thing is the amount of labeled data uh, out there. And this is the internet. This is everything, every tweet, every Facebook post, every corporate webpage, everything you ever put online, this labeled data is what these AI engines are crawling and learning from. They're learning from us. It's not like they're making it up you know, from zero. They're basically modeling us and they're extrapolating and interpolating from the information we've given them. So the amount of data is doubling every 24 months. Uh, there's a new term for the amount of data. Uh, we're going to hit a Yoda byte of data very soon. I love that term. Um, and the third reason is that the models, uh, how we're modeling AI, there's been a 99.5% improvement over five years. So the for for a dollar invested. So it's just getting cheaper and cheaper to create these models. And then the fourth reason, probably the most important one, is you know massive amount of money being invested, hundreds of billions of dollars. So all those things are just turning the volume to 11 on AI here. Uh, so that isn't slowing down, it's accelerating. Uh, but what happened to make it a topic on everybody's lips today? Well, these, uh, these generative pre-trained transformers, you know, GPT-3 and 4 by OpenAI, BARD, and what's coming from Google soon, Gemini. But what's interesting is there's been an inflection point, right? And that inflection point really, you know, I give credit to Sam Altman and the team at OpenAI with, with chat GPT. And what does that mean? Um, so we had, as, as you well know, and you've spoken about, uh, you know, we had ARPANET, which was out there. And ARPANET was around, it connected all the universities. And it was really Mark Andreessen with uh, Mosaic that put a user interface on top of very complicated equipment. And that user interface, Mosaic, and then Netscape allowed anyone to use this, this, this capability of uh, TCP IP and the internet protocol. And it made it easy for people to use. And the number of websites exploded in over the few years to millions and then tens of millions and hundreds of millions. Well, ChatGPT put a user interface on top of AI. And we went to 100 million users in two months' time. I think the important thing to realize is it's just one form of AI that's available, these, these generative pre-trained transformers. There are other ones coming. I was just hearing from a, a team out of MIT called uh, uh, Liquid AI that I'm going to bring to my stage at Abundance 360. Uh, and the numbers I saw, uh, you know, outperform ChatGPT in speed and context by orders of magnitude. 
And these are really based on modeling neuronal systems, um, you know, like uh, neurons, the brain. Uh, and so I think one of the important things to realize is there's no, there's no on-off switch uh, and there's no velocity switch we can turn down. We're using faster and faster computers to design and build faster and faster computers. We're using stronger and stronger AI to write code on its own for stronger and stronger AI. And so the notion that we're going to have AI that is fully human-like, we can describe what that is in a moment, and then exceed human capabilities, I don't think is a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. Uh, probably the greatest predictor uh, of this is someone um, uh, that we both know, Ray Kurzweil. Ray is my co-founder at Singular University on my board at XPRIZE, uh, a dear friend. And in 1999, he predicted AI would achieve human level intelligence by 2029, right? So uh, interestingly enough, everybody laughed at him back then. And where we are today is no one's laughing. Uh, in fact, the entire industry's predictions that used to be it's never going to happen or it's going to be 100 years or 50 years, it's all converged on Ray's prediction of 2029. Even Elon uh, recently uh, said he agrees it's likely to be you know, 2027, 20, 2028, 29 or thereabouts. Mm. And that idea of human level intelligence where you can have a conversation with AI about anything and man, are we so close right now just when we play with it? But guess what? The next year, it isn't human level, it's superhuman level, right? And we can talk about artificial superintelligence or or digital superintelligence, but it's coming. Um, and to quote um, you know, the CEO, uh, Sundar, the CEO of Google, it's going to be more impactful to humanity than electricity or fire. And I agree. Wow, that's an astonishing statement. I hadn't heard that from Sundar. And I guess, you know, this dovetails in nicely with the next statement, but also something you said a few minutes ago, which is, you know, now we have AIs training AIs. And, you know, if they can be great tutors and, and human level when they become superhuman level, what are some of the concerns? I, I, I you know, you and I both remember this horrible affliction that afflicted, afflicted bovines called mad cow disease. I've talked about the problem of of AIs training AIs, which is only recently starting now with ChatGPT opened up, you know, on, on searching the web with Bing, et cetera, recently with an update. You know, I call it mad bot disease. What are you most concerned about? Um, sure. Are, are you, yeah. So what are the most uh, concerning th factors and most exciting things just on a personal level? You're a dad, you're uh, a me medical uh, expert. Um, what do you play around with? So first yeah. concerns, then well, how are you having fun with it? How are you using it every day as a dad, sure. as a man? Yep. So let me start by saying that I have zero question. AI is the single most important invention that humanity has ever come up with, right? Artificial intelligence is going to enable us um, in the scientific and medical world like nothing ever before. It is going to be more powerful than the microscope and the telescope, more powerful than the scientific theory. It's it will give us room temperature superconductors. It will give, if they, if it's possible, it will give us fusion. It will give us the ability to design uh, and improve life uh, to perhaps solve aging, right? Which is where I spend a lot of my time is on the idea of, of aging um, is something that can be slowed, stopped, even, even reversed. So there is no putting AI back in the bottle. 
there may be opportunities to at least direct it uh, where it goes and it flows. Having said that AI is so important to humanity and there's not it's not going to be stopped. There's no on-off switch, right? I'm not worried about artificial intelligence. I'm worried about human stupidity, um, right? So let me parse three timeframes. The first time frame is right now, uh, 2023 to first Q of 2024. Uh, and I think if AI stopped right here, right now, uh, it'd be amazing. Uh, you know, all upside, no downside, making us super productive, helping us all become better programmers and artists and writers and more productive than ever before. It would be awesome, but it's not going to stop. And it's not going to slow down. It's going to accelerate. I want to make that clear. It's accelerating, not even linear. So the next time frame is really mid-24 through 28 that I want to talk about. I'll call that the midterm. And my biggest concern is the impact it's going to have on the U.S. elections. And it's going to be the ability for AI to cause uh uh, a reinvention of uh, disinformation, a reinvention of, of a truthful society. So if what you're watching, seeing, and hearing cannot be distinguished from what actually occurred, uh, we're in trouble. So patient zero is likely to be uh, a series of events that occur around the election, uh, which are create times of uh, panic or distrust. Uh, and if you're defeating democracy, that's a really um, uh, of great concern. When I'm talking about these problems, the next thing I say to all the entrepreneurs out there is solve them, right? The world's biggest problems, the world's biggest business opportunities. You know, we have blockchain. There's going to be an ability to uh, embed, uh, you know, blockchain watermarks or the case might be for authentication. But it's still... Sometimes, unfortunately, what you see on TV, whether, you know, people can show you something that looks realistic, like photorealistic and say, this is fake, but your brain is still seeing it and you may still believe it. And therein lies some of the challenges and the issues. So we're going to see patient zero around the election. We're going to see uh, AI being used for terrorist activities. What does that mean? Bringing down a power plant, bringing down a Wall Street server, just trying to cause havoc. Right, there are enough malevolent individuals, and there's going to be an AI arms race between the white hats and the black hats. Uh, the only way to take on the uh, you know, dystopian use of AI is with AI. Uh, there's nothing else, and uh, so there are a lot of companies being funded to do that. So that time frame between 2024 and 2028 is that period of angst and distrust and. In challenge, I think it's in the latter half of that, uh, you know, we're not really seeing the impact on jobs yet. Um, I think we'll see uh, a number of jobs being taken uh, and transformed. But, you know, every place I see AI being used right now, it's enhancing people's abilities to do more with every uh, minute of time they have. Uh, it's not, I haven't hired any less people. I've, I've, had higher expectations of what they can do uh, with yeah. this technology. No one's working less, at least in my companies. 
Um, so, and then the third time frame <clears throat> is really 2029 onward when we have AGI and then very soon, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, ASI, artificial superintelligence. And the challenge there is AI could be the single greatest pro-human capability we've ever had. Um, I personally believe, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, that the more intelligent a being is, the more pro-life and the more peaceful and the more pro-abundance it is. Uh, you know, all the TV shows where, you know, super advanced aliens come here and destroy us or Terminator, you know, I call bullshit on that. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, there's there's no shortage of resources in the universe, as you well know more than anybody. Um, and, you know, the movie Her, where the AIs get to a particular point where they get bored with humans and then leave to go out and explore is much more realistic to me. But <clears throat> having said that, I think AIs can help broker peace. I think they can help uplift humanity. What do I mean by that? Why do we have wars? Well, for a number of reasons. But one of them is that people are unhappy with their state of life, that they don't have food, energy, water, healthcare, education, and they have nothing to lose. And they're angry. Imagine a world in which we could uplift every man, woman, and child where we truly have massive abundance, where everybody has access to everything they need. Um, I think that if you had the best life you could live, uh, and a mom knows that her kids are going to have the best health care, the best education, can make their dreams come true, I think the last thing you're going to do is you know, start going to war and put on a suicide vest. I think you have so much to live for that you would not want to give it up. So I think creating a world of abundance is one of the most important things that we can do. And I think that occurs. I've had this conversation with Elon. He said, we've talked about abundance. It's a theme he's spoken about. He you know, was a, a big supporter of my first book there. And he said, absolutely, after AGI. AGI gets us that level of, of massive abundance. And so the question is, how do we make sure that AI is pro-humanity? And this is uh, another conversation that's going on right now at all the top companies, not enough inside the government, which is this idea of alignment, that as we are building and training our artificial intelligent algorithms, we need to make sure that they are aligned with humanity's best interests. And they're not aligned with radical factions. Mm. And the best example comes from a guy... Uh, who's a, become a dear friend. He was at Google, helped bring 4 billion people onto the Google platform uh, when he was head of business. Uh, his name is Mo Gadot. And uh, Mo wrote a book called Scary Smart. And it's a great book I commend to everybody. It's a short read, uh, very insightful. And Mo gives the analogy, he says, I want you to imagine that um, Superman... Superman came from Krypton, landed in Kansas, met the Kent family, became a loving pro-human individual because he was trained that way. Uh, but imagine instead that he landed in the Bronx and he was brought up by the mafia or drug lords, nothing against the Bronx, I was born there. Um, 
he'd become instead of a superhero, he would have probably become a super villain. So the the equivalent of Superman landing on Earth is AI, and we are AI's parents. And so how do we raise that AI? How do we inform it? How do we teach it? How do we model for it? Because right now we're modeling all of the insane stuff on the internet. So there needs to be the set of training languages, training data sets that are carefully selected, right? Um, you can send your you know, nine or 10 year old to uh, you know, a, uh, a great school, or you can send it to a terrorist camp. Um, and you'll have a very different outcome from the exact same genome. So um, this is what we have to think about. Hey there, fellow voyagers into the impossible, tis I, your fearful host, Professor Brian Keating here with a tiny little homework assignment before we get back to the episode. And that's to make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast, either following it or subscribing to it, depending on your podcast catcher of choice. I did some research of my own and found out that only about half of you are actually following or subscribing to the podcast. So please do that. And for some extra credit, if you're looking to boost your position on the grading curve, please leave a rating or a review. It really helps us out tremendously. Do it. Do it now before you forget. Let's go back to the episode. You and I are both uh, proud parents of twins. And you just mentioned a thought experiment that uh, I'd like to uh, explore in more depth, perhaps, and the way that genetics are not necessarily going to become destiny. And it might be the educational system that really parlays into a child's future success. And making sure that alignment doesn't supersede the role of a parent. I wonder now if you could talk about how has it affected you as a parent? It, it has affected me, but I, I already know enough about me. Uh, huh. I'm really curious about you. You're you're one of the most, um, uh, I would say, role model you know, exemplars I look to as someone who's ultra successful, self-made, and uh, just a force for good. But I know yeah. above everything, it's it's your it's your it's your kids uh, that yeah. that means uh, you in the future. The future is for them. So how has yeah. AI impacted your parenting if, at all? And how will it impact their prospects for jobs and employment yeah. in an abundant future where nobody has to work? Yeah, uh, beautiful question. And probably the most important question for anybody listening who has kids. Um, and yeah, I consider my my number one purpose in life is, is being their dad um, and being a good role model and such. So- uh, they're 12 now. They're uh, uh, in sixth grade, middle school. I don't think the educational system is preparing them at all for the world they're going to inherit. You know, I just I did a, a, a quick poll on, I'm going to call it Twitter. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Elon. I did uh, a, a Twitter poll and I was asked, is, is your, if you're a parent, is your, is your middle or high school preparing your kids for uh, the technological future. Um, uh, 3% said yes, 14% said maybe, and 83% absolutely not. And I think it's, I think people know this, right? Because uh, my, our, you know, my kids, how old are your twins again? Uh, they are, they're five. Five. So definitely for them. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, by the time my kids graduate high school in six years, uh, we're going to have AGI. We may have ASI. 
Uh, and they're going to have to learn how to live in a world uh, in which they're in partnership with technology 24 seven. Yes. Um, you know, we're all going to have a version of Jarvis from Iron Man, which is my favorite analogy. We're all going to have a, you know, what Microsoft calls a co-pilot, which understands you, enables you, uh, supports you. You think in Google, basically, you know, it understands, you know, as you enter a room, it knows your favorite music and it switches it over. If you're upset about something, it may turn on comedy on the TV to get you to relax. <laughs> um, but I remember when my dad didn't want to buy me a calculator because he wanted me to learn the math tables and I did learn the math tables. I got him to buy me a TI 59. I don't know if you, yeah, uh, it was, and it, I could, I learned how to program on it, which is what I said to have to learn to program on the damn thing. Um, and so, uh, I think our kids need to become AI natives, uh, to ignore that is, um, is I think ridiculous. Um, and so, but now the question becomes, what are they, who do they need to be as people in a world of these, uh, these superhuman AI capabilities? I, I think um, I'm more concerned about creating kids who are empathic, uh, who uh, understand how to make an argument, how to ask great questions. Um, you know, one of my boys last semester had to memorize the state capitals of all 50 states. And I'm like, Ugh, no, please. It's like, honestly, that's why God created Google. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think I need to occupy your neurons with that. So we're going to have to reinvent what and how we teach our kids. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about, you know, do I start a new school for them? Or do I partner with Singularity University to create, you know, after school programs and summer programs and so forth? But I don't, our educational system is broke and, and uh, baroque and broken, right? It's like, it teaches to the test and it is not, it's not preparing kids for the future, not even close. Yeah. And, and kind of uh, segueing from that into education, which is, you know, my vocation but it's also uh, uh my hobby as well and learning about it and and you operate a university singularity university and it's uh really transformative i mean you talk to top uh executives you see them on linkedin there that's always the thing they put they put that above almost everything except for you know the the, the harvard mit access <laughs> that you also represent but when you think about these exponential technologies and you mentioned, you know, creating a school, which is not an, you know, that's kind of a, an analog technology to, to overcome and perhaps, uh, you know, inculcate the natural intelligence rather than, you know, kind of uh, educating humans on what AI can do. And I wonder, are there, you know, kind of applications that either from Singularity University or its alums, or perhaps in that same space, in the education spaces, you and I talked about, you know, several months ago when we were on, we did a pod crossover, like, you know, when Laverne and Shirley would go on. <laughs> you and I remember that, but um, 
we did a crossover and I said, you know, educate, my profession hasn't changed much in a thousand years since the first university opened in Bologna, Italy in 1080. You know, there's been some sage on a stage and he, mostly he, unfortunately, but now more she uh, took a rock and, you know, scraped on another piece of rock. And and there were these, you know, wrapped you know, students in, in the audience, except uh, they had the power to go on strike. And then the teacher wouldn't get paid. So thankfully, tenure got rid of that barbaric <laughs> practice, Peter. But but tell me, you know, uh, I see no no besides your profession, healthcare, or your original profession. Um, and I see almost nothing more ripe for extreme disruption. And yeah. no job is safer, it seems, from the perils of AI stealing your job than the academic landscape that I inhabit. So tell me, Peter, what are your thoughts on building a new university? Uh, will we make my 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 job obsolete when you can learn from Feynman and Galileo and Madame Curie? Why learn from Brian Keating? Uh, so yeah, yeah. go ahead. Please explain what you think are the opportunities, perils and pitfalls for education. And then we'll pivot to healthcare at the end. Yeah. Uh, well, you should polish up your resume. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so listen, let's be clear about what's coming. Um, what is coming is a complete total revolution in education that is experiential. I'm clear about this, right? I, I, the example I used last time, I'll use it again, is if I want to learn about ancient Greece, I can pick up the Odyssey, the Iliad, and try and make heads and tails of it. But in a world in which I can enter a virtual world, which is photorealistic, and that tech is here right now, and there's a there's a guy in a white toga on a slab of marble who calls me over and it's Socrates or Plato. And uh, and he says, let's have a conversation. Let me introduce you to my friends. Let's walk around Athens. And I experience it. I'm there. I'm in conversation. I'm asking questions. I'm like being told funny stories. Um, uh, and that is amazing. All right. And there's just no way. I mean, a great teacher can can transport you to that moment in time if they are a great orator and storyteller and and make it fun. But not mass scale and not personalized. So I think we're within, you know, three to five years of that being here. Definitely within seven years. So I'm going to be able to learn what I want when I want in a hyper-personalized fashion. So the question becomes what, you know, we're going to divide education, I think, into two different parts. One part is uh, learning math, learning history, learning uh, science and skills and so forth. Another part is um, human interaction, um, being a good leader and, and, you know, it's the stuff in the real physical world that's going to be important to human human capability though we're looking at an x prize right now to teach empathy using vr so maybe i take that back anyway um i am curious i don't know the answer i mean one of the biggest challenges is uh, to help people find their purpose so we're purpose driven you and i share that right we're very driven um to to create and to educate and to inspire and to guide and to do all those things. Is there something inherently human that no AI is going to be able to replicate? We're going to find out. 
we're we're really going to find out. I don't know. What do you think? What, what do you, where do you think the you know a decade from now after we have AGI and ASI uh, and people you know we have the early versions of that with Khan Academy, yeah, um, and there are great games, um, and we you know we gamify a lot of things. We don't sufficiently gamify education. Right? Yeah. I, I love the the discrepancy. You know, in education, you start with a score of 100%. Every time you get something wrong, you get lower and lower and lower. In video mm-hmm. games, you start with a score of zero. And every time you get something right, it goes higher and higher and higher. I mean, <laughs> it's just that's just broken. Um, what do yeah. you think? Where do, where do you think education is going to be when we have artificial super intelligence? I want to divide it because you you've inspired me to to break things into epochs and and I want to talk about the epoch um, of the you know current status of how education can be optimized uh, the you know near term future and then the post twenty twenty nine deep future right now I've been underwhelmed by a lot of the of the you know artificially recreated Brian Keatings you know that I've tried to do and had them read to my twins bedtime stories in my place and uh, you know they can do an okay job but but really trying to replicate me leaves me wanting which is kind of surprising right because we've left digital breadcrumbs you and I I was on the internet in 1989 actually before that the bulletin board system I, I'm sure you even were I remember the bulletin board system yes yeah it was great until I, I ran up you know a local phone bill on a you know of a, over a thousand dollars back in 1986 that that almost got me kicked out of uh the house but um but so we've left these digital breadcrumbs for literally you know three to almost four decades uh there's almost nothing to my mind that sort of knows what brian keating knows and what he doesn't know in order to optimize an educational experience for me and my, our kids that are digital natives they will have that opportunity but i think you know there's a, a tremendous concern about privacy and so forth when you know in reality google knows more about you than your priest and rabbi minister doctor you know lover <laughs> right so we have this preciousness uh, and we should because privacy is a human right as tim cook said and, and I'm, I'm sure you you've had discussions yeah, but the question is do you actually be- does anyone really believe we have privacy yeah no i, I with the sensors and services and i mean on, listen, and amazon's in the bedroom AI. Yeah. You know, alexa's listening to everything all That's the time. Right. I changed I changed Alexa to computer. Computer, who is Peter Diamandis? Yeah. This might answer your question. Peter <laughs> H. Diamandis is an American marketer, engineer, physician, and entrepreneur. Computer, stop. <laughs> so what I've done, Peter, is I've connected the uh, C word of back there, my my Jarvis, yes. uh, to its own power supply. So someday I'm going to see if it'll turn itself off uh, <laughs> to see if it can commit a digital suicide. But in reality, I think there's tremendous. I, I think my colleagues are so averse. To, you'd be surprised. We're working on technology that can spot a light bulb on the surface of an exoplanet. Yeah. Uh, and yet, wow. and yet, we're not really thinking about how we can utilize this technology to have that you know Socrates experience that you just spoke about. And it's a huge opportunity for those that get there first. I'd say for the next 10 years after that, kids, uh, they will grow up and they can kind of, you know, go through it and, and have keep records because the computer is, you know, your human brain, you taught me this is not for, is not for storing information. It's for creating new information and having imagination. And yeah. lastly, I think the deep future 
is is really impossible to predict. I mean, if you listen to futurists, you know, uh, of any kind of caliber decades ago, it was flying cars and underwater cities and life on other planets. I, I think it's it's so risky. And yet, and yet they missed the Internet, you know, even though the Internet, as you pointed around, was around 1970. So they missed the impact of it. Famous quotes from people like Nobel Prize winner Paul Krugman that the Internet's going to be the impact of a fax machine. I, I think the deep future is very hard to predict. I'm excited to see what Ray you know his predictions, how how they materialize, but uh, but education I think is ripe for disruption. And I always say, you know, the professors uh, shouldn't sit on their laurels, but you know, for now they've had the opportunity to do that. Uh, we only have about 10, 15 minutes left, Peter. So uh, there's so many more questions that that I know the audience is going to want to really hear about. None more so, perhaps. Um, than uh, than your work uh, uh, in in the medical industry and what types of drug discovery, diagnostics, um, you know, medical assistance in the in the waiting room. You know, yeah. Eric Topol has written about you know doctors nowadays are typing into one computer and then patients are on their cell phone. Talk about the impact of AI specifically, and and uh, I urge everybody subscribe to Peter's newsletter because I've gotten. Not only many good subscriptions to many of the products, you know, Peter uh, has has uh, presented to me that I otherwise wouldn't have, but also uh, to have uh, the insights from uh, one of the world's foremost experts on medicine and AI. So, Peter, take it away. What can an Thank AI you, assistant do for us? Yeah, so I do agree. Education and health are the two areas that AI is going to massively disrupt, and it's sinful healthcare system we have today. And I'm on a mission to disrupt and reinvent it. And so that's where I spend all of my time. My venture funds are investing in there. The companies I've started are focused on that. And in the U.S., we pay a ridiculous amount. And we're like in the, you know, way down a couple of decades on on healthcare uh, quality. So what does it mean? Uh, we're complicated systems. You know, we are 3.2 billion letters are just the beginning of, of the complexity. You know, we have 40 trillion cells in our body. Each cell is doing like a billion chemical reactions per second. Uh, so there's a lot going on. We're quantum systems. I think one of the things I'm excited about is quantum chemistry and quantum computation helping, giving us new tools to understand, you know, how and, and, and why we are physiologically as we are. But here's, here's the biggest thing people need to understand. Uh, your body is really great at masking disease. Uh, we compensate really well. What do I mean by that? Uh, you don't develop Parkinson's tremor until 70% of the neurons in the substantia nigra are gone. Um, 70% of all heart attacks have no precedent, no shortness of breath, no pain, no nothing on and a CT scan. Um, you know, uh, the cancers that kill us, 70% um, of those are not screened for. We screen for, uh, you know, breast and prostate and skin, but we don't, we don't, uh, you know, screen for glioblastoma or, or pancreatic cancer or other other cancers. And, you know, if you, God forbid, should have cancer, you don't feel anything in stage one or stage two. It's only when you get to stage three or four and you go in and the doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but, you know, it's kind of late. We just found this. And we all have people who've gone through that. So I'm saying that because 
the world has changed where technology and AI now enables you to know exactly what's going on inside your body, right? So we're pilots, um, I, you know, uh, as I'm flying, uh, I have all my gauges. I know exactly what's going on inside there, a plane, right? Uh, in my Tesla, I've got all my gauges. I know exactly what's going on in the car. For most of us, we have no idea what's going on inside our body. And, and until you look and people say, I don't want to look. I say, bullshit, of course you want to look. You want to find it at inception and and take action. So as an example, one of the companies I serve as executive chairman of, um, spending half my time in it because I'm so excited about it because it's got the biggest potential impact. It's called uh, Fountain Life. We have four centers right now, New York, two in Florida, one in Dallas. We'll be opening one in LA next year. And we have a waiting list of like 40 centers we're building out around the world. You go and we digitize you. Full body MRI, brain, brain vasculature, an AI enabled coronary CT, a DEXA scan, your full genome, your uh, microbiome, uh, you know, it's 150 gigabytes of data. And the reality is no doctor could fathom or handle that much data. Uh, but we can now with AI, right? AI can take this data, integrate it, you know, look at your 120 plus biomarkers that are collected from the blood draws uh, and look at what's going on in the imaging and everything else and, and start to create a, uh, a model of what, if everything's perfect, fantastic. If something's wrong, what's wrong right now? What do we do about it? Or what's likely to happen to you and how do we prevent that? So this is the era of, of really preventative medicine um, with sensors all the time. And so we've saved hundreds of lives. Um, I have a couple of my friends who their doctor said, don't waste your time and money. And we find cancer in them. You know, we find cancer in 2% of people who think they're perfectly normal. We find aneurysms in 2.5% of people. We find a life-saving finding in 14.4%. At the end of the day, we're all optimists about our health, but we don't actually know what's going on. So the technology to know what's going on and then take action is finally here. This will get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time. What I mean is uh, we're going to, you know, the next stage and, and, and Fountain has their the vision I'm portraying is Fountain at home. So I'm wearing an R ring, I've got my Apple watch, I have a CGM, continuous glucose monitor, and we're gonna have dozens of, uh, of wearables, consumables, implantables that are measuring everything all the time and that data is being fed to your AI that is making sure everything's in perfect calibration. And if something is off, it knows about it instantly. And then in the near term, it's going to inform your, your physician, you know, and it's going to be a, a pilot co-pilot relationship between the doctor and, and the medical AI. Uh, eventually it will be just the AI system. It may modify the meds you're taking, may modify, modify the food it's serving you. Um, but we're going to get into a very rapid closed feedback cycle to optimize your health. Uh, and that's the vision of where we're going today. It's 17 years on average between a medical discovery and it being available to you in the doctor's office. It's crazy.
Yeah, and drug discovery and also just yeah, having the co-pilot. I mean, right now, I, I almost feel like in the in the future we'll look back on AI free doctor's visits as kind of you know bloodletting and phrenology and so forth, right? I, I'm predicting in five years it's gonna be malpractice to diagnose a patient without AI in the loop. I'll give you one example. Do you know how many medical journal articles are published per day? I may have asked you this number before. There's 5,000 articles in medical journals per day, right? So the question I laughingly ask is, how many did your doctor read this morning, right? And then can it know for my specific genome and my specific medical upload data, whether there's an article from this morning that has the answer to what I need, right? But that's that's where we're heading towards, and it's going to be extraordinary. Yeah, and similarly in the you know aviation industry, we talked about this last time. Right now, every plane has to dial in by hand and oh my take God. your every pilot has to take his eyes off or her eyes off of the windscreen and look down and type into it, and then they have to wait a minute for the weather to be ready. This should all just be in a heads up display delivered to glasses. They know where you're going. They know where you're landing. They know who you. So I, I just feel like the the impact in saving life, et cetera, is going to be so monumental that you're right. It'll be malpractice in a host of industries, ranging from legal uh, to to uh, to education, to aviation, to medicine. Uh, but Peter, we're coming up on the on the end of it. I want to ask you uh, just just one penultimate question is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as as a, as a person uh, uh, on the human level, as we see what what these technologies have always done. I was in Cleveland recently, uh, back at my alma mater, Case Western, and um, and I stayed near the Cleveland Clinic, and I saw some Amish uh, people, and they would get on the elevator with us, and they would ask us to push the button, yeah, you know, because they they will not make use of technology, I suppose. Uh, I'm not familiar with that religion. I know for my religion, Judaism, on Sabbath, on Saturdays, we don't use electricity. I don't work either. But tell me, Peter, are there going to be a class of digital kind of denizens that are left out or non-digital? Uh, I can always already see, as I yeah. said, one seventh of my life, I don't use technology. Yeah, so I mean, what about, what is that going to do? Is it going to bifurcate a class of, 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 of make a caste system based on digital access to AI? Uh, it will at the choice of those who choose not to. I think technology is a demonetizing and democratizing force. Uh, the better it is, the cheaper it is, and the more available it is. And people may choose a different path of life. Will it eventually cause us to speciate? Maybe. Uh, in particular, as we start uh, on down the path of brain-computer interface, right? So there will be those, I would probably include myself, that as soon as I can get a, a good high bandwidth link to my uh, my neocortex, um, I'd love to, you know, be as smart as you and understand quantum physics and, and you know, astronomy at the level you do. Um, Subscribe to my newsletter. And, you know. <laughs> uh, and at the end of the day, we're going to be upgrading ourselves um, you know, we're going from evolution by natural selection, Darwinism, to evolution by human intelligence, hopefully human direction. Uh, and so what does that mean if we can increase our IQ points, increase our connectivity? I think one of the areas that is going to bifurcate humanity is those not who only use AI, but those who merge with AI. Mm. Right. That's going to be the most interesting uh, element. So. Uh, if I'm 
able to think in Google. I'm able to know the intimate thoughts of someone else who's connected through this neocortex BCI system, um, a level of intimacy like never before. Uh, this is, you know, this isn't stuff that, you know, our children's children, this is us. This is the next 20 years. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay, Peter, this has been a treat. As I said, we could go on for hours. I just love schmoozing with you and, and uh, I always learn so much. Uh, last thing is just uh, how people can connect to you and go down the Diamandis rabbit hole as I did yeah. a decade and a half ago. I can't believe oh, it. You've been such a, you. such a thank hero you. of mine. And Where can people uh, find you? So uh, if you go to diamandis.com, you can sign up for my blog. I put out two uh, you know, a tech blog twice a week, one's on longevity and one's on exponential tech. If uh, my podcast is called Moonshots, um, you can see it behind me over here. There we go. Is that logo? Um, and uh, it's an episode a week. And I'm really focused on talking to people who are taking huge moonshots in the world, uh, as you have been, Brian, uh, and what they learned, where they failed, where they succeeded, and uh, what their advice is to others who want to make a big impact on the planet. Uh, XPRIZE.org, uh, we have launched over $300 million in incentive competitions. We're about to launch a quarter billion dollars of prizes in the next three months. Super cool. Uh, and then finally, uh, if you're interested in um, uh, my uh, longevity plans, if you go to demandus.com backslash longevity, uh, I have a free, uh, uh, my longevity practices, everything I do and why I do it all boiled down is a, a free uh, uh, PDF book that you can get um, because taking your health into your own hands is critically important. So anyway, that's my world. A lot else, but we'll keep it there. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we love you, Peter. Thank you uh, so much for sharing so much of your valuable time with our uh, humble audience. And uh, we'll tune in next time and enjoy the rest of this beautiful fall season here in California or wherever your travels are taking you around our solar system and beyond. Peter Diamandis, Dr. Peter Diamandis, friend and mentor uh, for many years. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate you. <laughs>